What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys, another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast, the GPP, where we give you the information and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. I am flanked by a doctor. His name is Michael. I'm flanked by a robot. His name is Thomas. Gentlemen at the top of my screen, how are you guys doing today on this fine evening? I'm doing wonderful. That's good. Happy to have you. Doing kind of shitty. Kind of shitty. Early. Tom just had a, a, a small crisis. Tom, you want to walk us through the crisis? Twitter uh, format it for us. Uh, 280 characters. Yeah. We'll just say, we'll say uh, two weeks old, we had a blowout. Yes. Dookie supposed to be in. Dookie go out. Bad time. Something like that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's okay. Me. My my, my son is gonna my son's gonna see me on YouTube one day when he's like nineteen or twenty, and he's just gonna get roasted endlessly by his friends about the time he shit his pants. <laughs> and we are happy to be joined by two gentlemen known as I don't even know if you guys are known as this. Mike has only ever called you guys this, the DDS boys. I believe that's two or three Z's down there at the bottom. The data driven strength gentlemen. I would like to introduce you, but we're going to do something a little special here on this introduction. The person who gets the first introduction is the one with the higher total. So who right now, right currently in their current state would have the higher total? So Zach, Zach is currently a little, uh, he's out of it. He's, he's operating on one lung right now. Um, luckily, Dr. Taylor here on the call has helped both, both Zach and I out as I rehab a pec injury and uh, Zach rehabs uh, having only one lung. So honestly, I'll, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. Um, as, as you'll probably tell, I'm not a huge fan of talking about myself, but I'll try to make it brief and it'll probably cover both Zach and I's introductions because we're, we're pretty similar guys and, and have a, a similar background. Um, Zach and I both went to uh, Ohio State University to get our undergrads in exercise science. And um, I was actually funny enough a while back, I was a uh, on like the physical therapy route. And I remember like uh, running across Dr. Taylor stuff. And, um, so like I was, uh, I was following Dr. Taylor while I was still, um, <laughs> while I was still like on the physical therapy route, but I eventually dabbled in, um, some exercise science research, primarily in clinical populations. And I was like, this is really cool stuff. I kind of want to go this research route. I met Zach through that. Um, and then, you know, he went down to, uh, Florida Atlantic university, uh, under the mentorship of Dr. Zordos. 
And then I followed him a few semesters later. And so right now we're, we're uh, research assistants, master students at Florida Atlantic University. Um, and yeah, we, we run a, a company called Data Driven Strength where we hope people will listen to what we have to say. And that's about it, man. All right, Zach, he handled the, the introduction on the personal side. Let's hear an introduction on the business side. So tell me a little bit about data-driven strength, what you guys do, what the mission statement is there. Yeah, so I think we started, you know, kind of just as a general kind of just helping some buddies out with programming at the kind of the rec center at Ohio State. And have kind of progressed it since we kind of got into research. We wanted to take our experience in kind of the lab, but also combine that with, you know, what we did in the gym and really take the research process and make that applicable to essentially every list lifter throughout the, the timeline of experience, whether that be something somebody stepping in the gym for the first time or somebody that's been doing this for a long time. Um, that's something we've really tried to kind of take our mission statement and really make research something that's not just this big, scary kind of thing that people don't really know how to apply and try to make it extremely actionable, um, kind of no matter what lifters kind of coming across our stuff. Um, and, and yeah, just kind of take the, take the scare quotes out of research and make it something that everybody can utilize to their benefit. Right on. I think I think that's a really valuable spot to be in in this field um, as is serving as that liaison. And it's and it's a it's a serious skill set because you have a lot of people that think that they do it well, but they really don't because they like the smell of their farts so much that they just throw these big words out there. Like, look at me bask in all that is me, whereas the majority of your content both of you guys, because you do a, a phenomenal job of it. A lot of your content is very easy to read, very easy to digest. And I think that's why, I, I mean, I'm sure that's a big reason why you've seen such a, a big spike in popularity in, in such a short amount of time. It, it definitely wasn't always that way. I think that's one thing we always like to remind ourselves on. And, and just kind of when we kind of do a self audit of like, hopefully we're headed in the right direction is like, we definitely had that phase of like, you know, going through ever using every word in the thesaurus to like try to, you know, flex our scientific egos being like saying stuff that you know just didn't apply but once we really reflected on exactly like kind of like i said how, what is the purpose of what we're doing and it's essentially to translate that information to anyone and ultimately the way to do that best is make it applicable and, and understandable by anyone so that's kind of the theme we've tried to make with our content is making it like you said, digestible and, and anyone can look at it and hopefully take at least something away that they can go apply into the gym the next day or the next week of training, whatever it is. So yeah, as we've kind of transitioned from trying to make ourselves sound smart and just, you know, letting the information that's a little bit easier to understand, do the talk. And that's, you know, hopefully where we can continue to build on that. And I'm sure we still do that to some degree and we can hopefully continue to, to build on that and, and not um, just, you know, like you said, like the smell of our own farts. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dig too far into it, the the feud that you guys have had with meme accounts, would you care to comment? Care to comment about maybe some some bad blood out there? Some people that whose necks you want to put on the chopping block? Oh man. Zach, that's all you, man. That was <laughs> I think you were more tangled up in that than I was. <laughs> so you know, I, I really try to I try to view that in the most positive light we can and, and, and try to, and I'm not trying to make this too political of an answer, but I'm going to, to some degree, I'm sure. But, um, you can view that in two ways, right? You can view that as a, as a personal attack and, and something that you can be defensive about and ultimately turn it into like a negative situation, or you can take that and try to use it positively. And I think that's kind of what we've tried to do is take, you know, maybe some comments that are a little bit more negative and something we may view as, 
strawmanning us in some way, but ultimately view that to hopefully communicate our points more more efficiently and, and articulate what we actually mean better. And regardless of you know whether we agree with the uh, with the criticisms of us or not, the reality is if somebody takes that away from what we're saying and don't exactly understand, there's fault on our part regardless. So I think taking that and turning that into a positive and, and just doing a better job of articulating exactly what we mean so that anybody that comes across our content won't take something out of context. I think that's something, you know, regardless of whether we agree with some of the criticisms or not, that's something we can take and hopefully build on and, and use as a use as a positive. Just, just to add something in right here, um, Ryan, you had mentioned how... Uh, some of our stuff is rather easy to digest and we, we try to make it that way so that, you know, if you're on Instagram and you're trying to scroll past and you don't care to spend five minutes reading something, you can take something away from it while also having the nuance there for the people that want it. Um, and also just like in terms of like a, uh, intellectual humility standpoint, we want that stuff to be there. So it's a very fine line to walk in terms of giving things that are actually applicable, actionable, and can reach more than two people while also having the, you know, the intellectual caution and, and stating things, uh, you know, with the degree of confidence to the degree of evidence we have to support that claim. And we, we've, we've messed up at times. Um, you know, I mean, we, we try to take any criticisms on the chin, but like Zach said, it's just, I'm sure two years from now, we'll look back and be like, man, we were messing something up back then. And, and if that's not the case, it's, we're probably, um, not, not moving in the right direction. So it's a, it's a, it's a balance we're trying to strike and we definitely have messed up in the past and I'm sure we'll continue to do so, but hopefully we can just reduce the error bars over time. I think to come back to our kind of original mission too, like one thing that's difficult I find oftentimes is that if our end goal is to, to help people and kind of try to communicate these ideas that ultimately is going to lead to what we think is a positive action, sometimes the terminology or the way you communicate idea may not be technically correct and like the most scientific way, but certain terms resonate better with especially the average lifter. So commute like kind of balancing that of like, for example, a lot of our content using the term low RPE, that resonates with people immediately, but oftentimes that isn't exactly the most accurate term to use. Like, so we originally kind of communicated a lot of those ideas by saying intraset fatigue. That's more accurate in terms of what we're actually saying, but half the people don't know what the hell that means. So it isn't as, you know, it doesn't get as much traction in terms of actually impacting what people are doing in the gym. So it's finding that balance of using the terminology and also knowing what is going to resonate with the average lifter to kind of balance that, that, that process of communication I find is something that is just makes that whole discussion that we just had a little bit more difficult too. Um, and like Josh said, I'm sure we've kind of erred on the wrong side of that equation probably a few times and we'll continue to do so, but that's just another variable that kind of adds to that, um, whole picture of maybe some people taking away something from our content that maybe isn't exactly what we intend. Man, that was, that was probably the most poised and graceful answer to that question. Cause that was a trap. That was absolutely a trap. And that's like, you, you guys really handled that well and, um, not as well as I would have handled it. And my baby been sleeping like four hours of time and I got time today, but the, the low RPE thing kind of set me off. Mike and I had a, a big long sidebar about that with just how stupid that whole saga became. Um, I thought we thought it was very clear, like what you guys were trying to communicate in that instance. Um, and, uh, and, and even, uh, to the degree that like time under the bar, 
kind of vets that out. And you talk to any really experienced, really strong guy, and they're like, man, everything, everything over 500 sucks, you know? And, like, it might be 60% of his max, but, like, uh, Milanichev, he puts 500 back. He says, that hurts, you know? Like, oh, yeah, it's only 60%. Well, if you, you only squat 400, sure. You know, if you squat 1,000, it all hurts. And, uh, you know, and I, and I think that some of that gets missed. And then one of, one of the things that came out with that whole deal with it just drove me up the wall is the guy uh, the guy came at you with some ad homs about, you know, like your your personal performance and how strong you, you guys were individually and all this. And and I'm looking at uh, and this, the specific character, you know, open powerlifting is a thing, man. Like all of your lifts are on the Internet. Like if you haven't benched 300 pounds in a meet, shut up. You know, <laughs> like don't come out after somebody else's numbers. So, uh, I mean, yeah, just, I, I, I like the way y'all handled that question and, uh, that's good perspective. Uh, for me, I get a little hotheaded sometimes and, and we'll just, just say stuff, but <laughs> yeah, I think it's, we, we, we try to do this as much as possible. And, and if anybody's listening to this and they, we say something, once we kind of start talking about training stuff, um, that they disagree with or they think they have another angle at we try to be as open as possible like in, inviting critiques it's just like okay if if a, a discuss a productive discussion is a remote possibility then then we'll happily engage like um i'm not gonna like give any names or anything but we had a a few people we respect very much so recently and they're like hey we think you got something wrong in your in you know kind of the model you guys talk about and we talked about it for multiple weeks trying to like, okay, what is the base disagreement? And we eventually worked it out, um, came to an agreement. Everybody came to the table willing to change their minds. And that's how in the process we developed our understanding of our model. Um, you know, they probably learned something too. And, th and that's how we progress as opposed to, you know, these, these silly things on, on social media. So. Yeah. Well, in social media is like hyper toxic anyways. I mean, nothing productive ever came from memes ever. <laughs> I mean, um, so yeah, I, I think that probably um, being being um, poised and big enough to to move beyond that when when that's where the uh, I don't want to use the word opposition, but the the dissenting opinion is coming from a perspective of like I'm going to post a meme and let my seventy five thousand. 19 year old followers dunk on you, you know, with no context or, you know, no understanding is, uh, you know, that's, that takes a lot to do that. So Mike T has kind of left. Oh, he's back just in time. So Mike T writes a question here. Um, his question was regarding kind of the special sauce behind DDS. So his personal term. Actually, you know what? Now that he's back, I only want to ask his question in a poor manner. Mike, special sauce question. Let's hear it. You're on mute, yes, by the way. Yes, sorry. Oh, I'm, whoa, I'm, I'm off mute. I'm back. I'm back. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. I had daycare calling me. Um, Tom and I are both just going through it right now, man. Um, anyway, my question I believe is in your original email to these folks right here when they had to pr propose a later recording date, you told them that their their priorities were out of line. So, yes, guys, this is your chance. Maybe let him know. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's coming back to bite me. So no, my question is, what do you think? You're very cognizant of how you try to present yourselves. Um, when you're, you know, creating content, communicating on, you know, Instagram and on your various uh, media forms. But what do you think sets you apart? Um, you know, you guys are not like the first like evidence-based powerlifting people, right? But I feel like I see Daydream and Strength shared 
everywhere, right? Like daily. Cause you guys are really good about putting out consistent content. And I see like a lot of, um, <clears throat> I, I see a lot of conversation discussion and, um, yeah, I just, I just kind of wonder, is that something that you guys have to like deliberately work on? You know, my, my opinion is I think it's y'all's brand. I think it's like really like aesthetically pleasing above all else. And then I zoom in, I look at the content and I'm like, Oh, that's cool. It's nuanced and thoughtful. Cause I mean, you know, I've been a subscriber to mass for like, you know, basically four years now. I think they put out their fourth, fourth issue this today. And, you know, I read it, but you know, mass, despite being an awesome resource is not like to speak negative about it. Doesn't seem to move the needle quite the same way. And I just kind of wonder like what you think you guys do. That's so effective in that regard. Me, you. I'll I'll jump in with a quick initial thought, then I'll pass to you, Zach, just because something came to mind. Um, I think, and 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 this is kind of ironic given the name of our company is Data Driven Strength. Is is obviously we try to use research as our compass, um, but sometimes we're like, and maybe being having a, a company name that implies that we're strictly by the books or strictly based on the research or every single coaching decision or programming decision we make has to be based on research is a little bit misleading. Um, and I think we're willing to, um, you know, kind of take the research as well as acknowledge the limitations of the research. I would argue that truly being evidence-based is also understanding the limitations of the research and kind of making our best bet in practice with even giving the, the gaps in our knowledge. Um, so I think it's probably just a, a degree of, of integrating experience. And again, we try to be clear when something isn't truly evidence-based. Um, and again, we try to scale our degree of confidence with the, the level of evidence that it has to support. So I think, again, ironically, you know, we probably get labeled as like very strictly evidence-based individuals, but again, there's, there's limitations there. So I, again, I'd kind of argue that being truly evidence-based is also acknowledging the limitations there and still making your best bet in terms of, of practice. But Zach, I don't know if you have anything to add there. Yeah. I, the way I think about it is like, we had this conversation one day, Josh, um, I almost view kind of our role in the kind of the community right now, or at least one of our roles, at least there's other people that do the same thing. I guess it's just the way I view kind of our, what we're doing is, you know, we try to, as well as we like to read the research and like keep our um, ear to the ground with that stuff. I think we also try to keep our ear to the ground in terms of what are real coaches doing and what are new eyes ideas that they have and, and maybe isn't related to research at all. And I think, our role is kind of taking the two ends of the spectrum there and connecting the things as best as we can. And as Josh said, oftentimes what I, what I think that is, is, you know, we take the limitations of the current research as well as the positive findings. And we kind of try to fit everything together and, and make, make practical recommendations. Now those aren't always purely based on the research, but we try to state the difference there and just kind of try to connect, um, you know, different concepts that coaches are using and, and try to make, make sense with what we see in the research. It kind of, going back to the low RP example, something we like to always make clear is we are not reinventing the wheel the wheel there by any means. Boris Shaco has been doing this forever. And we just kind of try to combine that with, you know, maybe some of the, the more modern approaches of taking, you know, submaximal top sets pretty consistently, like Mike T single at RP8. We just kind of combine those two ideas with some stuff um, from the research. And we didn't really do anything there. We just said, Hey, this seems to make sense. And here's a model to kind of explain it. And so kind of, I think that is why 
sometimes we can get a little bit more positive traction because we're not isolated to either community. And we really try to try to serve both. We try to communicate the scientific findings as best we can, but at the same time, make sure we're integrating the practical experiences from coaches, you know, that, that do the damn thing and actually kind of try to combine those things the best we can to deliver a kind of a holistic message that people can actually apply. A, A quick example, just to jump in here. Um, just to kind of make this concrete is periodization. Um, generally speaking in the research, it's you, you could definitely look at the research and come to the conclusion that periodization is not necessary to maximize strength gains. And I think that I, I agree that that's generally speaking probably a, a fair conclusion. But again, we have to keep in mind the limitations of the research. research. There's not a ton of studies that are longer than 12 weeks. Um, a lot of the periodization research hasn't looked at um, some things we think might be beneficial to periodize, primarily intercept fatigue, which often translates to um, average RPE. So, you know, that's just a concrete example of like, okay, here's what the research says. But in practice, we're going to go a different route because of XYZ limitations of the research. Like Zach said, piecing what we can from 12 week training studies. Um, So, yeah, just just kind of an example there. And I think that kind of segues nicely into a question that we had about kind of what you think that next or current uh, like big research question is that either you think is going to be kind of grab a lot of attention or you personally would like to pursue. So, like, what's that big research question in strength training that you'd like to see answered or pursued? I think the resensitization question is the main one I have. Um, I just think it. I, I, my mind often goes to just like pharma, pharmacological studies that look like drug interventions and desensitization happens with that almost always. And I just have a hard time believing that's probably not the case with resistance training, especially given the numerous antidotes of, of people supporting that. Now, Mike T actually in RTS had a recent podcast that I thought was a good point is that there probably is some positive selection bias with um, people talking about resensitization because if you didn't have a, you know, you had COVID layoff or, or lockdown or whatever, and you come back to training and you didn't have a really good experience for the first couple of months, you probably aren't posting on social media. So I think that that is something to keep in mind. But I do think um, in our coaching experience, too, I, I think this is something I've definitely um, kind of come around to. And I think it really relates a ton of different areas, whether you're talking about muscle growth and all of the super high volume studies, that's probably not practical for a really, really long time period. Like you're not going to do 45 sets per muscle group for you know the rest of your training career. Are there times that that's appropriate? Probably in that probably builds the case for some type of volume cycling approach. And then similarly, when we talk about strength, maybe we to this periodization model that we're kind of advocating for, maybe there's a three week period where we slash our training volume to one third of what it is normally. And then now we can kind of, you know, resensitize ourselves and get a much uh, better return on investment when we come back to training. I think, you know, we, the current narrative of training volume is more and more and more and more and more. And I think that's, you know, to some degree true, but I think kind of exploring the other side of things here, um, would also be a really, really interesting thing to do. And I think even applying this to kind of general population people, if, if we can have them exercise less and still retain a lot of the benefits or get an increased rate of, uh, gain when they come back, I think that's also something that's really, really powerful to kind of investigate. So I think just in general, that's kind of the main thing that I keep my eyes on is anything related to resensitization. Because I just think that has so many um, practical implications for a lot of people. I, I think that's a, a really specifically a really interesting topic because um, 
you know, we, we talk about how um, real world practice or the the um, you know the research tends to lag behind the uh, real world practice by by a couple of years, and we talk about evidence based for, based versus evidence limited, right? For that reason, and um, specifically with the resensitization example, you know, you can go back to uh, texts from Surin from like like nineteen ninety. When block periodization was first published, right, and and he talks about uh, training residuals and maintenance dosages, and uh, improvement dosages, and uh, and and really this idea that uh, you can maintain and slightly improve with a much lower threshold of of uh, fatigue or intensity, um, and maybe it gets lost in the world of powerlifting because the the focus is so singular on on strength within three movements and you're not really having to juggle multiple training effects that are maybe contradictory on a biochemical basis um, and not having to manage those things together in concert so so it gets lost because you know when we talk about periodization for powerlifting and it's really like lifting weights heavy and lifting weights not quite so heavy and uh, and Ryan will tell you how much that drives me up a wall when people start to conflate the the powerlifting uh, periodization versus programming you know uh, you know on a conceptual level because because I that's just one of those things that's kind of a trigger for me <laughs> but, Tom, Tom you hitting you hitting sixes and eights today bro yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, I, I think it's, a, a really interesting thing to, to see how the, the approach and the perspective of these concepts differs between, uh, you know, uh, traditional sports, uh, and even stopwatch sports where maybe like the, the, uh, the, the team, the coach, the, the sport coach is responsible for the strength and conditioning and, uh, and there's a more holistic view of uh, outputs between strength and conditioning and specific and non-specific uh, qualities versus powerlifting, which is, you know, if you're coaching powerlifting, the the techno-tactical component of it is is relatively very small. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for being a good meet day coach, but, um, you know, in terms of uh, being a good powerlifting athlete, if you're prepared well physically, you're probably going to be a pretty good powerlifting athlete, uh, you know. Uh, so, so I, th- I think it's interesting how the uh, the philosophies shape how the, those approaches are uh, are perceived between the two groups. Josh, I want to give you the chance to answer that same question, but you can't steal Zach's answer. Don't steal Zach's answer. Let's hear it. That's we we talk about the resensitization thing a lot, just just based on some anecdotes. So that that would be my answer. Um, off the top of my head, I'll probably default to our our bread and butter here in proximity to failure. Um, I think this is is largely because of this being a relatively new variable being investigated in the research. Um, there's not to say there's not a decent amount of research on it, but I think we have a lot to iron out. Um, I I. I don't think it's impossible that five years from now we are saying something completely opposite of what we're saying. Again, I I don't think that's going to be the case, but I think that option is still on that possibility is still on the table just because we have a long way to go in, in conceptualizing these things. And another thing I'd add is we have a long way to go in terms of ironing out our definitions in the research across different laboratories, et cetera. Again, no fault by any means to any researchers, but I think it's 
it's very hard to define what training to failure is. Um, and one individual's RP10 and another individual's RP10 can be two completely different things. So I think ensuring that that is consistent or at least well-defined can, can better inform practical recommendations in, in our interpretation of the research. Um, because, you know, there, there, there's one possibility that maybe no researcher has actually studied a true RP10 in the laboratory. I, again, I don't think that's the case, but maybe there is something magical that just hasn't been investigated yet. There's also another possibility that, and I think this is more likely to be the case, is that researchers are often pushing subjects harder than people will push themselves on their own in the gym. So, you know, when they are training to a given RP really in practice, people are training a few RP points below, especially for, for, for volume work. So again, I think there's two kind of, there's two ends of the spectrum. The, the right answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but a lot of possibilities are, are still on the table. So that's kind of my, my default answer, our, our bread and butter approximate to failure. Mike. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's actually a good segue to a question that I included kind of at the last minute on the, uh, on the outline here. And that is, um, you know, for you guys, you know, with, with some of the stuff you guys have talked about with like the, the low RPE talk, um, like how do you define it and how do you practically recommend people, I guess, train with it? Because so for me, I, cause I, I like the idea in theory, but then I think about it and it's like, I can't actually think of a time that I've done an RPE six of something where I haven't been like, like, I don't know, like excited to train that day or like known that it was going to be a good day. Like I've never done like a, a bad day where like the bar even felt like the bar felt like more than RP six, everything's RP eight above. It just becomes slow at some point. Um, so I, I don't know, like, do you, do you like separate like the emotional state from it somehow? Or like, what do you typically, what would you recommend to a, a novice, um, RPE fiver wanting to, to join the movement? Zach. So I think there's a there's a few ways to go to go about it. I think the way that we're generally going to do it, um, you know, not to get into our whole talk on this too much, but I think the one thing that's really really important when you are using some of those strategies, um, especially in the long term, is you need to make sure that the load is heavy enough. So in order to to be able to train at those lower RPs and still see positive adaptations, and again, this is mostly based off the research here, um, probably need to be above a 10 RM or like 75% of 1 RM um, for the most part. Um, and, and that's not to say if you go below that, you're not going to get any benefits. It's just saying to like, be very confident. You can get the exact same results with lower RPs load probably needs to be that heavy. Um, so often the way that we will prescribe that is almost always, um, in concert with some sort of top set prior to that. So, it, you know, going back to the whole force production talk is that, you know, the thing on the top of the pyramid or the highest in the hierarchy are heavy loads. So if you're doing a, you know, a single at an eight to nine RPE, that's high RPE. But the reason that it's high RPE is because it's really heavy, which is in contrast to when you're really tired, the latter being a, a, a different, uh, reason that we probably kind of want to avoid. So as long as you're hitting that, you know, that top set that you're, you're probably more excited about psychologically, as long as you hit that, and then you kind of have a very accurate gauge of your, your strength for the day, then we can be pretty confident in assigning those low RP back offs based on that estimate one RM. So pretty much always the way we'll do it is some type of top set, whether that be, uh, you know, anywhere between one to five reps at a five to nine RP, just can, depending on how you want to do it. And then after that, we'll just take a percentage of that estimate one RM and, and kind of uh, assign the back off work in that way. And so the the kind of the 
other thing I'll say is that it's not necessarily that we're chasing a, a, a certain RPE range. It, it, that's not really the idea. It's, it's just that at a given load, what we're trying to minimize is bar speed decline throughout a set. So, you know, whether, whether that means that you're training at a seven RP or five RP, that's going to be dependent on the load. So the heavier you go, inevitably the RPs are going to be higher. We're just trying to minimize the bar speed decline throughout a set. So, um, yeah, that'll, that'll be the primary way that we do it. If you're kind of more using the hypertrophy kind of protocol style, we'll often use what we call like a tester set, which is like a six to eight reps at like a seven to eight RP. Again, with the idea being that we're trying to get that 10 RM load set. So that set is higher rep and higher RPE, but one set, we don't think the consequences are huge for that. And that's going to give you a really, really accurate gauge on that 10 RM load. And then from there, you can break up the load into like triples or fours or whatever to get the rest of the volume in at a lower exertion and ultimately fatigue. So those are kind of the two strategies, depending on whether you're kind of more on the strength side of things, which would be the former or kind of the hypertrophy side of things on the latter. That's kind of the two ways we want to do it. But hopefully you always have something to be excited about going into the session and you're not seeing uh, five sets of three RP4 on your sheet because I don't think I'd be very excited to do that either. Yeah, we almost never like say we, we never when we prescribe an RPE, we 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 would or I'll I'll take a step back and re-explain this. If we're going to have somebody train at a relatively low RPE, we're not going to prescribe the RP. We're gonna find a way to give get them to accomplish that goal by having some sort of tester set. I don't feel confident asking many people saying, hey, I want you to do five sets of three, somewhere around six to eight reps in reserve. Most people are going to botch that up, you know, even if you're a very good lifter. So finding a way to get a tester set and to kind of set the uh, the percentage of one RM you want to use for that day um, is is almost always necessary. Tom, you got your hand raised. Yeah, so um, kind of a, a tangent to that. Uh, you know, one of the big criticisms that you always see about the the rate of perceived exertion, you know, with when it comes to powerlifting and strength training, is that uh, you know it's it's a fundamentally a qualitative system, right? Uh, so so um, and and the the cool thing that Mike T did with it you know, back 10 ish, 15 years ago now, um, was take this qualitative assessment and, uh, translate it to some sort of quantitative, uh, program. Right. Uh, and maybe he doesn't do this quite the same way now, but, you know, back in the day he used these, uh, fatigue stops and, and measuring the, the change in RPE from set to set, you know, at a given, uh, rest interval, et cetera. And, and all that stuff's real cool. I do a lot of that still. Uh, I know Mike doesn't, Mike T doesn't think it's necessarily useful anymore. He's abandoned it, but I, I find it still very helpful. Um, but you know, we, we talk about this qualitative system and uh, and the big criticism there is that it's it's not externally consistent, right? So like one person's RPE8 may be a totally different uh, proximity to failure for another than you know another person um, in terms of percentage of absolute max, right? Absolute intensity. Um, and so like, you know, so I'm good at reps, so I can do uh, five reps at RP9 at like 85%, uh, and somebody who's maybe more absolutely stronger, they're, they're tapered out at like 78, and uh, and the people with the spreadsheets, uh, certain segments, they just can't process that like people are different, there's individual differences there. Uh, and then, but, but tangential to that, there's there's the issue of like internal consistency, and, and I've kind of found that even 
you know, internal to one lifter and not even over long periods of time, you know, within a single session, there, there can be huge variability in, uh, how they perceive, uh, the, the stress from a given load or, you know, uh, and so my, my question there is, you know, you've got these issues of internal and external consistency because it's purely, again, a purely qualitative assessment. Um, but does it matter? Right. Um, do you still get the training effect? I know um, if you go back to um, uh, Michael Yeses's one by twenty system, right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with one by twenty. It's kind of kind of a like a cool fad thing um, in the the world of uh, high school and collegiate strength conditioning right now from the the minimal effective dose uh, philosophy, uh, but. But Yesis did research and um, developed the system where uh, he'd have lifters or you know athletes coming in relatively untrained or detrained, uh, do a single set of twenty, you know, three four times a week every day, whatever, and uh, and he found that they were still uh, satisfying force production in the early reps, even though they're working. You know, reps one through ten are a very low RPE, uh, and they're satisfying force force production uh, requirements in those early reps in the set. And and as they approach uh, failure with these longer sets of lighter loads, they're still not they're still developing maximal strength because their proximity to failure is high. And uh, and obviously, you know, you get into some physiological issues when you get to really, really big sets, right? But but in the domain of what we're talking here, uh, a set of three versus a set of 10 versus a set of 20 in absolute terms, uh, you're still engaging a lot of the same physiological stuff. Um, so with that in mind, I guess my question is, is how do you see that um, with regards to these low RP sets? And people look at that and say, oh, that's not intense. But, uh, you know, there, there, there's not always a firm and hard link between uh, your absolute intensity and your rate of perceived exertion and uh, and your proximity to failure in terms of repetitions. So those are kind of three variable aspects. And I, I, I'm not convinced anymore that that it really affects uh, the, the efficacy of the training. Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to take this under the direction that I interpreted your question. If it's not exactly what you were asking, I apologize. But um, so the, the first thing I'd hit on is that from more of a philosophical point of view, I think the, the variable of proximity to failure does exist, and that's independent of the RPE rating. It's just we the the way that that actually is going to be reported by the athlete may not be exactly what we want to know. That's I guess that's that's the way I see it. So, in in our kind of the way we think about things, the when I'm going to rely on using RP, which like you said is an inherently subjective measure of effort. I'm going to set up the athlete in the, the position that I think it's going to be the most useful and that they're going to be the most successful, which based on the research we know are probably low rep sets at a higher RPE. So that makes the candidate of top sets the most probably the best scenario to to use RPE, which like we just talked about, that's generally the one circumstance. So we're probably going to rely on that the most is, OK, this athlete's going to work up to a single at an eight RPE, which is going to be, you know, above 90 percent and relatively high RPE. So it's going to be pretty accurate in general. Um, and even if it's not exactly accurate, I don't think that totally diminishes its utility. And then from there, we're not really going to use that to to prescribe load, and it's just going to be a a uh, descriptive measure from them. And 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 from there, I don't know if we particularly care exactly what those RPs are. It's just 
keeping our finger on the pulse in, in, in terms of, okay, is this effort excessive in terms of what I would expect? So one question that Josh and I have actually got a few times that I don't think we've talked about and, and really flushed out all the way is, is it the, is it the percentage of one RM that matters or is it the fact that it's a 10 RM load, which those are two different things. Like you very eloquently pointed out is that, you know, repetitions performed at a given percentage of one RM while v- vastly differ between individuals. We have one study that goes from six to 26 repetitions at 70%. So really, really different between individuals. So we generally recommend kind of alongside one another, 75% of one RM or 10 RM load or heavier. And these low RP strategies can be efficacious, but those aren't always synonymous. So can, which, which is the kind of one that we, that we primarily care about there. Um, I am inclined to believe it's probably the 10 RM rather than the, the arbitrary percentage of one RM that just kind of is, it's, we essentially say that because it correlates with the 10 RM, not the other way around. So I'm, I'm inclined to believe the 10 RM matters the most. So going back to your comparison between the three, 10 and set of 20, um, I think that's going to be super, super dependent on the athlete and the way that you're measuring strength. Probably, um, if, if they're, if they're pretty detrained, I would say in, in most cases, all those are probably going to be relatively equal in, in the strength demos that they're going to provide. But if they're a little bit more specific in terms of like, okay, I'm training for a squat one RM and I've been doing so for the past couple months, then I would say the higher intensities are probably going to be better just because of specificity. But I do think, um, this is something I've been thinking more about recently is those, you know, lower percentages of one RM are, could they be beneficial for strength for other reasons than what we would traditionally consider? But I'm going to, I'm going to leave it, leave it there just to make sure I actually address what you asked. But Josh, I don't know if you want to put some color on that or that, that was just kind of how I interpreted your question. Go, go for it, Thomas, if you have any follow-ups there, just to make sure we're hitting on your points. Yeah. So I guess, I guess kind of what I was getting at is that the, um, you know, maybe, where, where my thinking on this matter has gone over the past, uh, what is it, Ryan, six, eight months that I've been talking with you about this is uh, that maybe really what matters is is the um, most is the perceived effort, rel- not, not, not some uh, definite constraint to, uh, you know, a, a single event or a test. Um, and then maybe... Um, you know, obviously there's issues of specificity between a one rep max and a 20 rep max and um, training for a 20 rep max is not going to be as specific as training for a one rep max. And you're into a whole nother bag of, of issues in terms of fatigue management and, and sustainability uh, with, with how long you can stay that close to one rep max. But maybe the, the, um, the, 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 the real uh, grease that makes the whole thing work is the effort and not necessarily where that falls on a, uh, a fixed scale, fixed relative to a, a you know a one single performance or a daily test or uh, or what have you. But maybe um, you know Mike and I talk about staying in the pocket with his training, and and he's really good at having this intuition about when to. Uh, he's great. Don't let him fool you. He knows what he's doing. He's the easiest client I've had in a long time. Um, Fuck. <laughs> but he he does he does a really good job of of you know kind of uh, self coaching and assessing 
you know, uh, is my effort on this where it should be? Uh, and I may tell him to, to hit something and then back off 10% and hit, uh, you know, a couple sets at this. And, and he may hit two of those three back off sets and say, no, I need to, I need to cut another 5% off of this to get the intent in terms of effort out of this set. And, uh, and he's done a really good job of when he does that of maintaining good momentum in his lifts, um, just from, you know, workout to workout week to week. Um, and, and kind of using that intuitive approach, obviously he's a very experienced lifter knows his body very well. So it, it works differently for, for less experienced people who maybe don't have that, that self-intelligence. Um, but, but that was more of my, my train of thought there is, is that the, the effort itself is what we're trying to describe when we talk about RPE or percentage of one rep max, we're, we're not, we get, we get hung up on these things from a quantitative perspective, um, but really what we're describing is an intensity uh, and that's, that's a internal thing. Right. Um, and you go over the endurance world. Uh, they want to measure it by heart rate. That's, that's the, the easy way people talk about training in zones, but then you also run into issues where there's confounding factors um, where your heart rate zones are affected by like your external temperatures and the duration. So you may creep up out of what's traditionally zone one or zone two on a long endurance event, but you're still actually functioning within the same physiological parameters. And we're just not able to clearly define for all situations the the intent as it relates to physiological outputs. So, so, Tom, if you have to kind of like plant your flag into the ground when assessing a metric by which to kind of operate on, it sounds like Zach and Josh are kind of grappling between is it a percentage of one RM or is it this 10 RM figure? Those are the two terms that we want to like utilize. Which one is going to be more valuable when sitting down to actually write this stuff out? Like, what is your metric? Because you say you say intent, but I'll, uh, let's I want to hear you like quantify what that actually is, what that looks like when you write it down on a spreadsheet well and so and that's the that's the challenge with remote coaching right because everything we do is to try to translate what we're thinking and what we could probably like watch a lifter do live and communicate like that needs to be less that needs to be faster that's that's too light you know and we're trying to communicate these things forward looking instead of with a with a rearward looking where like you know we're not instantly assessing and adjusting when we write programs for distance uh, clients, right? And uh, so I guess really what I'm getting at is that when I talk about all these things, it's trying, for me personally, trying to uh, more accurately communicate to a client that I can't interact with immediately and responsibly or reflexively. what I mean by like, I want this to be a little heavier or I want this to be snappy, you know, I want this to shake a certain way, you know, and it's, uh, it's kind of like jazz, right? It's not, not always the right note, but it's just the note. So I kind of think, I think that's the disconnect that a lot of people have with training is that like, you can't just put it all into a spreadsheet and we're not robots. Um, you know, and I, I think you guys, uh, from your material, I've been a big fan and like, I share your stuff a lot on social, um, you know, the, the stuff you guys talk about, I think is really going in the right direction, but that's kind of where I am. Uh, when I tell somebody that I want them, like Ryan, I tell you to, to hit a, a heavy ish single and like, you know, Max what that out. feels like. Yeah. Max yeah. Out. Yeah. yeah. Out. <laughs> right? or, or I tell you to like, you know, you're doing rounds on something and I tell you to get faster each round, you know, I can do that too. And, and then, you know, you've, you initially, you struggled a lot with that, but you've kind of developed to this allegedly. Life. 
allegedly. This personal intelligence to where you can kind of feel like I got to do five of these. Okay, I'm good on the first one. You know, like this is too hot. Right. So uh, that that's kind of my where I was getting at is is it's it's much squishier with me. <laughs> I, I think that's a very, very good point and probably something we should talk about more often because it is vital. Um, and I think what you're getting at, I would probably conceptualize is just the general skill of training. Um, and like, yes, you can put down a given protocol, right? You can you can get a training program and get a protocol. But there's depending on execution as well as, you know, kind of that skill of training, how you know, what, what's actually applied is going to differ a good amount. So, um, I think, I think a, a big thing that comes to mind here for me is how can we put like more, more tools in our tool belt in order to achieve what you're saying? So, you know, if, if, if we're trying to accomplish a certain goal, you know, what, what tools do we have at our disposal? Um, so I guess something that we, we, we try to advocate for is putting more tools in our tool belt to do that. Um, and then in terms of j just to kind of go back to the stuff specifically related to like RPE and like percentage of one RM versus 10 RM load, I think a helpful way to conceptualize that is let's say we have a given load on the bar for a given athlete. Let's say it's 300 pounds. Um, I would I would say in terms of the strength stimulus. Well, to take a step back, if you were to if you were to do that load for one repetition, let's say it's 0 0.30 meters per second. I would conceptualize the strength stimulus you're getting from uh, a given repetition is based on how close you can get to moving that load at the maximum velocity you can. So basically, as the as the repetition velocity decreases, the the subsequent strength stimulus decreases because your force production is decreasing. Because if we just think about F equals MA basic physics equation, um, you know, if if you're accelerating a given load. Uh, to a lesser degree, the the force production is going to to decrease. So, I think probably where you know it's probably two separate concepts of of what are we actually trying to do and how are we conceptualizing the stimulus. But then how do we kind of auto regulate that and use that as a skill of training? Which another rabbit hole that we could go down is like volume auto regulation because I think that's ultimately kind of what you're getting you're getting at is like. Okay, within a given session, how can we apply the proper dose of training that we're trying to get the desired training effect? And on a given day, we might need 10 units of training dose, but on another day, for whatever reason, we might we might need six units of training dose. Or another way to think about it is okay, we're trying to apply six units of training dose, and to get six units of training dose on this day, we're going to need this load, but on another day, to get six units of training dose, we're going to need a different load. So I think it's probably two separate ideas that that are not mutually exclusive, but are, are probably two separate discussions. So I don't know if that was, uh, that was a bit rambly, but Zach, yeah. go for it. I'm going to go back to the meta discussion a little bit. Cause I actually really like that Thomas. And that was really thought provoking for me. Um, what the kind of the, the, uh, analogy I wrote down in, on this notepad here, cause I'm, that's how I do things, I guess. Um, it's professional. I think it comes down to the fact that we make a lot of assumptions in terms of an individual that everything's linear. So kind of the analogy I wrote in my head is like if I have a given athlete and I write down all this stuff about them, relationships of how many reps they can perform at a given percentage of one or M, how many weekly sets they need, all different kinds of stuff like that. You know, often the way, you know, our brains are kind of programmed to do things is 
I'm going to highlight that row in Excel and I'm going to drag it down and use that drag and drop function and just think that everything is going to correlate linearly with whatever factors are in my life or different things like that. But the reality is nothing is like that. So like you said, you know, Mike comes into the gym that one day and he is X less recovered or X less, um, you know, has X less, uh, um, readiness to train or whatever. And our brains are like, okay, so that same exact relationship should be how much we should decrease training stress, but it's never like that. It's way more of an art. It's way more reflexive. It's way more, um, it's, it's never that linear relationship. I guess that's kind of what I took from what you were saying. And, and I think the, the challenge is like Josh said, is not holding ourselves to those directly linear relationships and trying to be a little bit more reflexive with this and figure out those patterns for every individual. And I think really the only thing that can do that reliably is just train longer and get better at the skill of training. Like Josh said, to kind of combine that. But I think the concept kind of remains is that like, no matter how many, how many data points you have, no matter, no matter how many books you read, um, that linear relationship is probably never going to hold true. So you're never going to have, you know, the right answer for every single situation. And some of it's just going to come down to, you know, going by feel and understanding the concepts you're ultimately trying to kind of auto-regulate, I guess. So I don't know. I don't know if that kind of gets at what you were talking about a little bit. I think I was understanding what you were getting after you kind of explained it the second time. Yeah. So that, that's, that, that's dead on. So, uh, you know, and we talk about like, uh, I like that uh, training units, right? Or volume units, right? And, and really when we talk about sets, reps, load, um, really, really volume and intensity are um, proxies that like our brains can, you know, we, we've got heuristics that, that we apply to here to, right? In all things, because we're humans and we perceive things a certain way. And then you get into a whole epistemological discussion there, right? About what you know. And uh Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> now, uh, but you know, all of this is really—it's just a, a proxy for stress, right? And the, the magnitude and, and the the quantity of stress, and and like what that looks like in absolute terms, and it varies wildly day to day, person to person, uh, you know, set to set. Like, um, so the the more targeted, and this this is kind of like the the point at which I think it was maybe like 2013, 2014 reading Mike Mike T stuff that I was like I saw the Matrix for a minute uh, when I realized this um, because it changed programming for me forever to realize like I'm not prescribing sets I'm prescribing stress and like you know my, I'm trying to push an individual's body just enough and then that's enough and and what that looks like may change day to day and then i mentioned the, the fatigue stops that was that was what when i understood what he was trying to do there that's where i understood like what he was talking about right so uh, and that's kind of what i'm getting at i guess and i, I thought the i think the velocity-based thing is, is really interesting because i am admittedly not super well read on that um it's kind of hard to like for me to access in my garage because uh, the equipment's expensive or it's always out of stock uh, if it's inexpensive. And, uh, and then there's a lot of like, you know, external variants there with people, you know, that they have individual uh, fiber types and, and motor abilities and, and technique and bar path and distance and everything. Uh, so you can't just say for one person, it's this many meters per second, right? Um, but the idea that like what you're looking at is an individualized threshold of, of bar speed uh, and then uh, exposures above an individualized threshold of uh, relative intensity. 
I, that's not something that I had really framed that that way for myself mentally. So I'm going to have to go lose some sleep over that. <laughs> so that's very something cool. that came up when you were talking is like again, we we, we sometimes slightly regret the name of our company because you might assume like don't get me wrong we try to make the the spreadsheets we use pretty fancy but something we do like to keep is open text for where we write our training protocols for athletes so like you might assume like okay we have a set for we have a a column for number of sets a column for number of reps column for number uh for rp whatever um but we like to keep those open text because a lot of the the stuff you're talking about in terms of the skill of training and kind of going by feel we feel yes obviously like mentoring an athlete and, and helping that um helping them uh work on that over time can also be kind of baked into the program a little bit so like if if you want to put like an rp cap on there so it's okay we work up to a, a a given rpe and maybe we put a note in there that hey if you feel like barb speed is is dropping set to set a bunch just go ahead and cut it or hey i want you to work up to a top triple at you know something that keeps your symptoms below a given threshold etc so like even even if you, you you can still combine like kind of this data savvy way of going about things and also talk about that skill of training and you know kind of the the softer skills of 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 training that was that was literally what i was going to say because i was actually going to say something to mike that i, I think you kind of thought it was kind of weird when i sent you the kind of rough outline of what i was planning to do and i had like some prescription that was like five at little to no symptoms or something like that I, I i write training like that all the time which is like super super non-descriptive based on previous conversations with the athlete exactly how it contextualize those words but i write stuff like that pretty consistently and like all the time i'll write top sets that there's not an rp there it's just words and like it sounds like very similar to you thomas like i just want it to feel heavy but not too slow and like that it's not really an rpe it's just kind of you know you know what it is yeah exactly exactly but yeah no i i I use uh we use that open text feature all the time and i think it kind of aligns with what you're talking about is we're ultimately going after this physiological thing that our brain has correlated numbers to that really don't mean anything um and it's just we're trying to find the best proxy from in terms of metrics that are actually describing the physiological event that we're trying to to make happen so i i don't know mike if you have anything to say on that but i I just that churned in my brain when josh said that yeah no i i actually i loved it um and you know so i use similar uh like cutoffs and stuff like that with rehab a lot because i mean you know i think you know, pain-free is like the obvious one. Okay. Like don't let it get into pain. And it's like, well, it's not quite that granular. Like it's probably okay if it hurts a little bit, but I don't want it to hurt like a lot. And I'm also not going to ask you to be like, I've made this mistake before. I'm like, don't let it exceed a five. And then people are like, oh my God, was it a four? Was it a five? I don't know. And it's like, you know it when you feel it, right? It's like, uh, if it's not right, it's not right. You gotta like learn to trust your judgment on that, which is that skill of training, which rocks. This is the best conversation ever, by the way. I feel bad for people who are not on this podcast right now. Um, and uh, and yeah, you just kind of let that guide your training because you know ultimately that's what we're trying to do. And uh, and yeah, so I, I really like that a lot. And I don't I don't have it in front of me now. I wish I did, but like you had one because you had two different uh, like intensity governors and they were kind of saying the same thing but absolutely they were different. and absolutely they were different no symptoms and then i think it was like little to no symptoms i think is what it was yeah basically like the same a, thing yeah. but not the same so it's like you know but, but only you know and you know if you had like a, a coach doing it or anything like that would kind of know like what those things correlated with so 
no, I thought that was that was awesome. I love it. So uh, to double back real quick about the the brand for you guys, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if maybe other people perceive it this way, but when you guys talk about data driven strength and, and the way you uh, interpret that, that's not how I interpret it at all, actually. So um, when when you guys talk about it, maybe it's like my personal biases and how I approach training and philosophy. Uh, when I saw it, I kind of took it from more like a sabermetric perspective, right? And that you're constantly collecting data about your clients and you're honing the approach as you go. And every decision, I know you guys made posts about this, uh, you know, decisions with clients, with athletes are, are driven by what you know, and what you've seen and observed with that client versus like anonymous avatar uh, for 2069, whatever, you know, like, like, uh, you know, because this, this one ebook said three sets of whatever is the way to go. It, it, that's what we're going to do. But this person's stronger, you know, it did none of that, but really like taking a look at the individual and, uh, and growing the program around them. Uh, and, and having the uh, the ability to to take best practices and to take information from their training and how they feel and how they respond to it and and uh, adjust and manipulate uh, you know just like you're you're making a soup you want to put just just enough salt in it and you don't really, you don't know how much broth you got already so you gotta you gotta kind of apply the taste test you know and then just right. <laughs> Maybe this is a post hoc rationalization, but um, I think we can kind of squeak our way out of that by saying that data includes kind of all inputs. So like, yes, the the obvious one is like the the concepts we can gather from the research. But if you have if you have data to indicate that, you know, whether that data is is something objective you're seeing in a spreadsheet or it's something subjective you would, you have gathered through conversations or body language, et cetera. Like I, I would consider that data as well, just kind of, again, defining data as all inputs. So, you know, all those things can integrate for the given individual to produce something that, like you said, hones in on, you know, just kind of reducing the error bars for that individual over time. So, I concur. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's maybe like that, the the gap there between like vulgar empiricism and then like true evidence based but not evidence limited practice where where you know you acknowledge there's things you don't know or you can't explain and there's relationships yeah. that you you perceive but can't fully uh, define the relationship of you yeah. know the nature of and uh, and there's there's a lot of again back to the epistemological like what you know what you don't how you know. Um, so it's very cool. Yeah, that, that's how I perceived y'all's brand. So you know, don't don't feel like you're pigeonholed to you're charitable well, being some PubMed nerds. I think you're doing. Yeah, we appreciate the charitability and and just really quick, uh, one of our other coaches, Jake, he he uses this term often. I don't know if he came up with it, but um, I'll I'll credit him for him. He says evidence based, but not science only. And I think that really hits home. It's like yes, you can use this as your compass, but like not blindly follow. The research evidence so just yeah. throwing that out there you've heard the phrase uh, absence of evidence versus evidence of absence right and that's that's probably yeah we're very similar. same spot there man i just listened to this conversation i think these guys well well read they can they can verbalize so well well spoken what the hell got you guys into academia 
don't you know how rich you could be in private practice? Is that the big thing here? Are we going, we're going, you know, as soon as DDS goes to the moon, it's bye bye, Dr. Zordos. How are you going to say goodbye to him? Is it going to be like a poop sack on his desk kind of thing? Is it going to be like you throw money in his face? What's the, what's the, what's the exit plan there? Well, he's got me tied down for another however long it's going to take me to do my PhD. So I, I probably am going to hold back, uh, hold back any further commentary here. But I don't know if Josh wants to take any uh, personal stances before he uh, really officially gets into the lab work for his master's here. No, I think I mean, the, the academia stuff is awesome. And I think, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to not make this too political, but I think I don't I don't think we could do one. I don't think we could do one in isolation better than if we weren't to do both. So like having the the academic side improves the practical side, um, the practical side improves the academic side. So, um, and also like it's, it's, it's more fun that way, just from a personal selfish level. Um, so, you know, I think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably be in the academic realm for, for the foreseeable future for sure. I think it's it's one of those things that like I I'm careful in the way I say this, but I think it is true to some extent. Like you can't you can't truly appreciate some research or, or, or interpret it as correctly as maybe you should until, until you've had a hand in it. Like you know, we've all been the kid on or seen the kid. I, mean, I guess maybe it was just me on T Nation saying, "Well, I was just studying only six weeks, bro. That's dumb." You know, it's it's just like that kind of thing is like. While true, it's, you know, getting into the, the real world and just understanding how painstakingly difficult it is to convince a 19-year-old at the rec center with the stringer on that, yes, sir, I know I'm skinny with you, but you should, uh, you know, do this training study with us. And and, and, and we have, you know, our, the leader of our lab is renowned in the world at this stuff. And you should really just come lift weights in our lab. And it's just so difficult to get people to say yes to that. And it's just understanding that and just like really, truly intimately understanding the limitations of research, having your first hand at it, I think gives us a little bit more um, perspective when we're, when we're translating that stuff. And I think it, like I said, I think it gives us a, an additional lens to help us with the translation process because it essentially makes you aware of certain limitations that you may not other otherwise consider if you if you weren't to participate a little bit. So like example Josh always talks about is the paper says they trained a failure. But think about that from a logistical perspective in research. Uh, are, you can't force somebody to go to failure. That's that's a dangerous event. And, and when you're doing the ethics of a study, you can't do that. So that's immediately a consideration you have to have in mind when they say that they trained a failure. It's like you can't force somebody to do that. So they maybe didn't. And it's just like having having some of that, that clarity um, at, after participating in research, I think, is something that helps us ultimately with the practical stuff. So I, I would agree with Josh totally, I think. And then also doing the practical stuff is going to fuel us asking relevant questions in the lab. So I think that joining those two things together ultimately benefits both sides. And I think, as Josh said, I don't think I could see myself not participating in either for, for uh, the time being. But, you know, as I said, we'll leave that to Mr. Boss, man, and hopefully he doesn't kick us out of the lab anytime soon. <laughs> I thought of two things when you said that the first was something that Josh said about like tools in the tool belt and, you know, having that background in academia is itself another tool in the tool belt. 
of, you know, being in the lab, knowing how that kind of having that hands on experience of that. And the second was, I think there's a lot of individuals um, who are somewhat of like academia doomers where it's like, oh, like you don't need to go and, you know, work in a lab and get that degree. Like, you know, just just cut your teeth working online or, you know, drop on down at the local L.A. Fitness and start start training there. Don't, don't worry about. Yeah, Tom, coming for you. Don't just get your experience there instead of. But those same people will have what you just said of like, oh, this study sucks. Like, why do none of these researchers lift? Like, they clearly aren't like in the know. They aren't woke on training. And it's just a it's it's a lot of people. I think back to like the meme conversation we have. It's like a lot of people poking holes from the sideline when and trying to trying to single you guys out or single folks like you that do similar work to you guys out without understanding that like y'all are on the front line doing the thing and and if if i could give you a hug i would maybe even a kiss it wouldn't be too wet (laughs) (laughs) one thing i just want to clarify so i don't not sleep tonight i don't want to i don't want to be a uh like saying not everybody can utilize science because they definitely can it's just I think it's like you said, it's another tool in our tool belt to actually have participated in collecting data. But that's not to say that if you haven't had academic experience, it's still not a useful tool. And you can still be aware of the limitations, um, you know, by conversations with people that actually have collected data and all that good stuff. So I I don't I don't want to be a, um, you know, a gatekeeper in that sense. I think everybody can utilize it to their benefit. I just wanted to make that clear. I won't I won't be able to sleep. Mike, Mike mentioned earlier mass like I. Do I think like I could re-research and interpret it right now um, if I didn't, you know, pursue academia? No. But like, honestly, when I first started reading research, I just like, um, you know, get somebody interpreting that I trust the research and then pull up the the full paper next to it and say, okay, what did I mess up here reading it myself? Like there are ways to do it. And like some of the smartest people and most well-read people we know didn't do any of the academia stuff. Um, So I think you know, the, the barriers in the fitness industry can be a curse at time, but I also think it's a blessing and it, and it, when utilized properly is, is really cool. Like, again, I know, I know multiple people that are very, very smart, very well read, um, understand how to interpret research, um, not poking holes from the sideline. And, you know, they, they haven't stepped foot in a, in an exercise science program, which is totally fine. And the, the last thing I'll add here really quick is just that I think people's expectations about what the goal of academia is or like a, an undergraduate exercise science program might not be, you know, what they what they think at face value. So, like, you're not going to an exercise science program to learn the best powerlifting training cycle. Like you're going to at the end of the day, what you're going to get is a really nice foundation of physiology, how that applies to acute and chronic exercise, hopefully a little bit of biochemistry, you know, basic chemistry, biology. And that gives you kind of the critical thinking framework and the the just overall physiology framework to apply going forward. Um, and then when they don't get that, it's like, oh, this is a, a waste of time. It's like, well, what exactly are we are we here for? And what what is the program preparing you for? Because, yes, you want to be a powerlifting coach, but also the other person in in uh, your major is pre-med. You have a pre-physical therapy person. This person's going to go be an exercise physiologist at the the hospital. So it's like, you know, what exactly are we doing here? And then you can kind of specialize down the down the down the road. I just wanted to add one more thing in here, Thomas, real quick. I also think it's interesting when uh, keeper. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm, I'm terrible. Um, I also think it's interesting too, like when people from other academic spheres like give their two cents on exercise science. I think that's also really, really interesting. Like, we, like Josh said, we have a ton of friends that are like really well read, but like don't come from 
exercise science or health science related fields and like have really, really interesting takes. So I think that's, that's another thing to consider. Like you, having a scientific skill set is not limited to the field. And often the most productive conversations are like cross field, uh, conversations. Like we have a friend that's like super, super well-versed in physics and, and stuff like that, that can help us with some of the, the, like the mechanisms of like neuromuscular stuff because he knows the physical, uh, equations so well. So I just think those crosstalk conversations too. So like, um, having a scientific skill set can be useful in, in a ton of regards. So I think the same kind of reflexive thing is true. If you learn some stuff about exercise science, whether that be formal or non-formal, you can apply that to other areas of your life, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, but Thomas, go ahead. I'm done gatekeeping. Oh, I was, I was just going to tell Ryan, want to make sure that pointed out where we, we said that you didn't have to be, you know, cause I'm, I'm the, I'm the, the self-appointed dumbest person on the team. Uh, <laughs> so I, I have, I'm the least qualified coach at gifted. I, I, I got a business degree, a minor in psychology and I, I work in the project management space, uh, outside of what I do with gifted. So I'm, um, like, you know, the guy on the sidelines, that's, that's me. I'm the, I'm, I'm that guy. And, uh, he is I, the doomer. It was really, well, it was really interesting for me when I started working um, with Gifted and talking to, especially Paul, because Paul was at the time still working on his master's and and really like heavily engaged with with research. Um, you know, and I kind of had this, uh, I, I hate to say like vulgar empiricist bias, right? Where where I'm I'm looking at the study says this, it's study it says it can't can't argue with that, right? And uh, and since I didn't have, I've, I've got some uh, undergrad uh, psych research exposure, but, you know, and I, so I should have seen it coming in terms of like underpowered and, and, you know, vague conclusions, right? It's like soft studies. Um, but Paul was like, man, this stuff is, uh, it's not that, not that simple. And it's, since I didn't have the exposure to the, uh, the lab side that say like Mike or Ryan, with their uh, their educational credentials, you know, I didn't I didn't have that, so it was it was kind of like eye opening for me when he's talking about yeah we had n equals nine and I'm like what n equals nine you can't what and he goes yeah yeah and it was you know nine undergraduate frat boys who were probably drunk the night before and you know so so there, there's a lot of like you talked about contextualization of data um, there's a lot of that there that you know I don't I didn't have don't have and I lean on these guys for like hey what does this mean especially uh, especially Hector you know because he's 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 just like suffered through the worst rest of it. in peace yeah rest in peace what, what is Hector even getting his PhD in like cellular biology or something insane I, I think he I think he's uh, getting his PhD in laboratory failures. <laughs> yeah i think the one thing i was gonna add there is that i think a lot of times that can be used so my dog's over here hopefully she's not um not as loud as mine <laughs> um I, one thing i was gonna say is that like like when you're viewing problems in coaching though i think if you haven't been pushed down that same railroad track that everybody goes down in like undergrad exercise science and views the problem from the exact same way. I think that's oftentimes when the most creative solutions can come to like a given problem. So I think the fact that you have like a group of coaches that all have slightly different backgrounds, like obviously you come from a different place, Thomas, Mike's the physical therapy route, Ryan, maybe a little bit more traditional, like all kind of combining your, your, 
your different views of the problem, I think are the best way to come to solutions rather than everybody, you know, is like looking at a skyscraper from the right side. You maybe don't see the, the hole on the left, like that kind of thing, I think is um, something that's useful. So I don't always view like not having a traditional, like whatever view of exercise science as a negative. Cause I often think like, like, you guys are all looking at it this way. This is stupid. Why don't you like think about it from this angle? It's way more, it's like, this is obvious. And it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But everybody, you know, viewed the same, you know, NSCA textbook from 2005 and they're like, no, it's this way. You know what I mean? And so I think, I think that's, that's often an advantage that isn't considered sometimes too. So I have a monitor right here behind my laptop right here. And the, the kickstand or what's propping that up is that exact textbook that you're talking about. I got two copies of it on each side under each leg of my TV. Um, how many, how many, how many reps for muscular endurance go? Oh yeah. It's all, you gotta be 15 plus. Gotta keep those rests <laughs> short. Really gotta burn it. Got, uh Oh, he's got it. <laughs> Everyone bring out your essentials textbook. Yeah. <laughs> what's the height, what's the height of the mirrors for the plates? Uh, oh, like uh, no, 16 inches be, no you no, so wrong failed failed 26 yeah um, no, i think it's 36 isn't it three feet of clearance six. yeah you failed too yeah, <laughs> well, you i was gonna say i was gonna say that's a master's in pe so yeah we've got all those on the shelf here hell yeah i was just gonna say that you know that that kind of reminds me of i forget the author but it's like one of those like well-known new york times authors but the book range kind of came to that similar conclusion that you know having a diversity of a of opinions and, or a diversity of experience typically is a, uh, like a benefit in, in most cases. So, you know, I think that's, that's awesome points. That's, that's an excellent book. And I think like, you know, you have the, uh, Malcolm, uh, David Epstein kind of challenged the Malcolm Gladwell, um, and they've had super good public discussions about like kind of this, this nitty gritty specialization versus this more generalist approach. And I think, you know, there's a, also the the book grit by angela duckworth which kind of opposes range in some ways and and this is a topic i found super interesting and i think um i think there's you, you kind of need people on the ground in the lab with the nitty-gritty stuff okay what's the next layer of information how do we push that circle of human knowledge to the next level but you also need the birds in the sky from the high level point of view the 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 generalist to kind of okay how do we integrate this how do hey you guys are pushing the circle of human knowledge in the wrong direction let's let's go this way instead so i think like we we, we have to have the people on the ground the nitty-gritty and then we can also have people from the high level um giving their input so just want to jump in because i like that topic and i spent a lot of quarantine thinking about it via range and and grit and some of malcolm gladwell stuff how about sports gene have you read that one that's Epstein. an awesome book. Oh, that's an that's awesome book. classic. Love it. So I, I think that's doing endure right now. Oh, yeah. Endure similar, great. similar type of book also would recommend. So Mike, my birthday is coming up. Not even close, but kind of, uh, you want to send me an audible credit so I can also get endure and we can, we can nerd out on that together. I got you. Thank you. I appreciate you. So, uh, I think that's interesting just, uh, from, from my like you know, personal professional background, I said, I work in kind of the project management space, um, and without getting too like specific about what we do we build large, complex, uh, nuclear construction projects. So, um, and, and they're, they're all one-off, you know, unique things. It's not, not a, a stamp and go reactors like they do in China. Um, uh, but what we Shots do, fire. a lot of it's, uh, uh, just kind of bespoke, right? And and so you have this really interesting dynamic within the project teams, where you've got a uh, 
uh, you usually have a project engineer or an engineering director who is the uh, technical brains, and then you've got a guy who maybe understands a little bit of it, um, and he's got usually a stronger the project manager um, has a stronger business acumen, or or maybe that guy has has got a good regulatory acumen. He understands what we're working through in terms of codes, and then the uh, you know you've got an additional. Uh, director of controls, who's the business guy, and he understands the numbers. And so you've got uh, the hard uh, numerical, empirical stuff on the the engineering side. You've got the soft skills and the construction management and the project management side. You've got the the super unique skill set of working with regulatory bodies and federal clients. And then and then uh, you know the business side, which is purely numbers and finance and uh, and budgeting and and what have you, and all of those perspectives kind of form the core of what the project needs. Because if you just had just an engineer, and I've been on jobs where it was it was all engineers running the show, and my whole family's engineers. Don't get me wrong, but they think about things a certain way, and they do things a certain way, and uh, you're really lucky if they don't run themselves into a corner because of how they're wired. And, and that's really useful for their specific function, but that perspective may not serve the the bigger picture. And I don't want to I don't want to go too far off of that. But, Josh, something that you said that's currently burned into my brain that I'm going to probably steal, probably take credit for it. Never really cite you at all whatsoever. But you said that a lot of exercise science majors, they go into the degree with the mindset of I'm going to learn how to write powerlifting programs. And I, I think it's a really good discussion there about, you know, wanting to dig into the methods before you understand the principles. And what you said was like, hey, you know, zoom out and I'm going to teach you the principles. And then the methods are many from there. There's many there's many roads to Rome from there. And I think Mike had a very specific question about program design. I think it was about a post that you guys had made that particularly uh, piqued his interest. Yeah. So I was just going to ask, like, you know, what, you know, to anybody out there, you know, be it coaches who are coaching lifters or athletes who just want to be better at training. Um, what like specific thing do you think we could do better to guys get more out of training or more out of our execution, be it from a programming standpoint, like, you know, everybody should be doing, um, you know, sets of five and eight or, or something like that. Um, sets of three at five, I don't know, or, um, like execution, everybody should be, um, you know, doing a bunch of, bunch of weird, like foot and diaphragm stuff. I don't know what you guys are into, but, uh, but yeah, like just from, from y'all standpoint, what are like the two like highest, uh, we're not two, I guess. What's like the highest value thing that you think most people could do to immediately or, you know, in the short term, improve, uh, improve, I guess, their, their training outcomes? I, I have a few things that come to mind. So um, I don't know if there's like one big thing just that jumps out at me right away. But I guess I'll probably think through this in terms of like if, if I have a, a new athlete in front of me. Typically, when I when I see their previous training, there will be a lot of similarities across, um, you know, different previous training programs. And what are the, the most uh, common things I'll change, um, you know, with with their new programming? And a couple things come to mind. The first is allocating a little bit more training volume towards movements that are 
kind of optimized for growing the prime movers. So I think a lot of a lot of powerlifters will get um, yeah the the bodybuilder shaking his head. Uh, a lot Hell of powerlifters yeah. will get caught up in accumulating all their training volume doing the main lifts, and of of course that's necessary to some degree, but. You know, that's that's a change we often make is almost every time I have somebody do like a, a competition bench slot or, or a, a competition squat slot, it'll almost always be followed up by a hypertrophy variation. Obviously, there, there's exceptions to that. But, you know, that's kind of how we set things up is like, OK, we have our um, we're having the, the dose of training we need on the main lift to continue to develop skill and confidence with heavy loads as well as technique um, development with with the main lift but then after that it's like okay what's the point of accumulating more volume the point of accumulating more volume is to drive muscle growth how can we best drive muscle growth let's do that on something that's very well suited for this individual um some people the the comp squat might be very well suited for them to grow their quads but a lot of people it isn't so let's get them them on something that that kind of maximizes that return on investment for them Um, another thing that comes to mind is um kind of psychological periodization and this is something that's been on my mind because oh it sounds like i stole it from zach (laughs) oh um psychological periodization is that again i talked about how I, i wouldn't say there's convincing evidence to indicate that everybody needs to periodize their training for strength but again we still do periodize training in practice and generally speaking, we, we we break it up into hypertrophy focus phases and strength focus phases. And I'm almost hesitant to call it that because it's a very small shift in bias, because really the largest shift in bias comes from the psychological approach. So we're, we're very much in favor of keeping top sets in for powerlifters year round. But by A, the actual protocols and B, the psychological approach to those top sets, the kind of emphasis of the the the, the phase can be shifted. So okay, how can we ensure we maintain that skill and that practice and that confidence with heavy loads while not digging ourselves into a hole for the rest of the session so that when we get to our leg press, our high bar squat, whatever, and we're, we're trying to actually grow the quads because that's probably going to be your best long-term investment. How do, how, do we, how do we program that for the given individual? And then, okay, now we're in the strength focus phase. Yes, we're still going to be doing some of that uh, more hypertrophy focused work, but we do it in a low fatigue strategy. And now we can kind of have some controlled aggression for those top sets. Um, so those are the two that come to mind is kind of volume allocation at large. And jumping off of that is the psychological approach to those different sets for, you know, whether it's the competition lift or close variation versus more hypertrophy focused slots. Yeah, I very much agree with the the psychological one. That was the one I was going to hit on. And I'm going to try to take that and expand on it um, in a different way of like why I also think that's important. And I think, you know, Josh hit on some specific programming things that we that we talk about, I think. But just kind of a more meta meta point that I think literally every single lifter can, can do regardless of what they're doing is just understanding that you know, the training you're doing today is going to need to be adjusted and to actually be moving forward to where you want to go, you need a system of some kind. Now there's a ton of debate in the like training world right now, of like what's the best way to, to set up this system of individualization. You know, you have RTS with emerging strategies. We've talked a little bit about this um, and kind of our preferences, but I don't really think there's a right way to do it. But I do think that having a system and in, in, in very specifically making adjustments over time is, is a huge, huge thing that I hope more people can, can understand because ultimately what that does is it gives you what we like to call like diagnostic clarity. So when you're making a change, 
I know because I'm making small changes or hopefully even an isolated change that this did or didn't work or led to the outcomes that I'm seeking. So I think just understanding that is going to kind of drive some programming things inevitably. And I think you're probably going to start on a little bit more of a realistic amount of volume, intensity, all that kind of stuff, because the goal being, okay, I'm going to start with something that's realistic. And when it doesn't work, I'm going to make a change based on my system. So you're going to start a little bit more conservatively. That will lead to consistency, which I think is a huge part of diagnosis clarity. Going back to the psychological arousal piece, if you have these huge fluctuations and you know getting super hyped up for some sessions, and it's not the same session every week, and it's just you have a ton of fluctuations in that psychological arousal, I think that automatically is going to impact your readiness to train as well. And you kind of compound those two things together. The data that we're getting from training, you know, go back to the overly data reliant approach, but that's not what I mean right now. But um, going back to the data you're getting from the training, it's going to be in different contexts. So you can't really compare apples to apples. And our goal with long-term training is to have a system that allows us to make incremental changes over time and get closer to optimal outcomes. But if you just kind of start training and start making the tons of changes week to week because you you know you see a fad on Instagram, you know hopefully we're not contributing to that too much, um, or you're or you're just seeing tons of things you want to change because you know stuff happened throughout the week. I think that is going to probably be a, a net negative for most people. So I think starting with the system, however you want to organize that and just making sure that you're making, you know, incremental changes over time to have a high amount of diagnostic clarity, I think is going to be a net positive for pretty much everyone. And we'll be coinciding with some kind of more realistic and uh, consistent programming strategies, but that's, I, psychological arousal was my first answer. So hopefully that was okay, but Josh stole it. So guys, I think the, I think the chef's kisses on this episode here this little 90 minutes that we've thrown down here are going to be so plentiful that it will demand a second episode so if you'll come back we'll have to uh, we'll have to dig into some of these topics a little bit earlier but we do want to or a little bit more but we do want to be respectful of your time i want to give you a chance to kind of plug um the social medias the projects that you're currently working on um for everyone who wants to read more about these guys right here what they're currently offering what they're kind of throwing down if you smell what they're stepping in you can have find all the links below in the bio but i do want to give you a chance to uh talk about your offerings your amuse bouche of tasty oh, powerlifting treats oh man um <laughs> if you if you find us on instagram so mine is just josh dot data-driven strength sacks is zach.data-driven strength kind of have everything linked there um i i, I don't want to make this a sales pitch by any means i mean we have like one-on-one coaching we also have some lower cost options now so if you're interested in that but uh you know you can check it out um if you think some of our ideas we're off base here shoot us a message we're more than happy to chat um again like we talked about if if it's productive discussion we, we 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 love it and that'll ultimately get us closer to the truth so and that's what we're after so um yeah you can find us there and and that's kind of our central hub thanks for having us on guys appreciate it yeah Had fun. Appreciate it. Fun. love to come back mike mike tom anything you want to close with i just wanted to say that chef kisses 
disagree with anything I've said today, you can fight me. <laughs> <laughs> so we used to have a series on the gifted page called Fight Me Friday, where Tom, we would just get Tom riled up. We'd put him on, uh, we put him on Crowder's face, Photoshop him on Crowder's body, and just let people fight. I think my favorite one was uh, when Charlie Young came, or Charlie Jung came on and said that pod, power, uh, what was it? Bodybuilding periodization did exist, and Tom's response was, "Well, somebody has to be wrong." And <laughs> that was my personal favorite. All right, guys, as always, you know, do the YouTube stuff, like, comment, subscribe, blah, 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 notification bell. I'm sure that's a thing as well. And as always, guys, stay gifted and we love you. See ya. This is the part where we all flex. We all flex. Flex, everybody. <sighs> oh, yeah, yeah that's my sleeve tearing. You didn't hear it? Well, it happened. <laughs>